This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Common Spine Disorders. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, filling in for our moderator, Dr. Jim Allen. The evolution of spine surgery in the past 60 years is epitomized by two Americans, President John F. Kennedy and NFL quarterback Peyton Manning. John Kennedy injured his back playing football in college. His spine disorder was so severe that he was rejected from the military twice before finally getting an appointment in the Naval Reserves as a PT boat officer during World War II. After the war, he underwent four spine surgeries, all of which were unsuccessful, leaving him with debilitating pain and requiring him to use a back brace as president. In November 1963, he was shot twice while traveling in a motorcade in Dallas. The first bullet resulted in a non-fatal injury that should have caused him to fall forward. However, his back brace prevented this with the result that he was still upright when the second bullet struck killing him. In this sense, his failed back surgeries contributed to his death. But now, let's move ahead to 2011. Peyton Manning had just completed his 13th season with the Indianapolis Colts, starting every single game and winning four NFL Most Valuable Player awards, as well as winning a Super Bowl championship. But years of football had left him with spinal stenosis and a herniated disc. So in May 2011, he had spinal surgery, but afterwards, he was only able to throw a football for about five yards. He underwent a series of three additional spine surgeries that caused him to sit out of the 2011 football season. The Colts released him in March 2012, and it seemed that his spine disorder was going to cause the end of his career. However, the Denver Broncos took a chance on him and signed him for the 2012 season. 
Manning threw seven touchdown passes, becoming the first player in 44 years to do so that, that first game. That year, he took Denver all the way to the Super Bowl and was awarded his fifth MVP award. In 2014, he became the NFL leader in all-time passing touchdowns, and then in 2015, he took Denver to the Super Bowl again, and this time won. The advances in surgical technique between 1957, when John Kennedy had his fourth spine surgery, and 2011, when Peyton Manning had his fourth spine surgery, are truly amazing. Today on MedNet, we're going to show you just how far spine surgery has come. Joining me in the studio is Assistant Professor of Neurological Surgery and the Residency Program Director in the Department of Neurosurgery, Dr. Andrew Grossbach. Andy, welcome. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. Well, Andy, back pain is incredibly common in primary care practice, and managing back pain often requires a lot of different specialties. How is the OSU Spine Care Program organized, and what are its main components? So the Spine Care at Ohio State is really a, a multimodality uh, system. So we know that most patients with back problems, with spine problems, don't go on to end up needing surgery. So uh, our Spine Center at Ohio State you know, not only incorporates neurosurgeons and orthopedic spine surgeons, uh, but also physical medicine rehab, anesthesia pain. And so we really try to take a multimodality approach to you know, treat these patients um, you know, uh, non-operatively if possible, and then having you know, surgery options for when those treatment options fail. Spinal stenosis and lumbar disc herniation are two of the most common spine conditions that are seen in primary care. Do all patients with stenosis or disc herniation require surgery? Definitely not. Uh, most patients with spinal stenosis or spine problems don't end up needing surgery. Um, that's why I think it's important to have this multimodality care where we start with the more conservative things, things like physical therapy, you know, targeted spine injections, and really reserve uh, surgical options for the, for the patients that, that don't get enough benefit from those other treatment options. Well, thanks, Andy. For all of you viewing, you can watch all 120 of our current MedNet webcasts by going to ccme.osu.edu on your web browser. And if you prefer to get your continuing medical education by podcast, just go to your podcast app and search OSU MedNet 21. Also, if you have questions about spine disorders, you can email us by using the Ask a Question icon at the bottom of the MedPage web, web page. Now let's get started with today's webcast. Andy? Very good. Well, thank you so much for having me. So uh, today I'm going to be speaking on uh, common spinal disorders. I um, think this is important for for any, any physician who sees patients. Uh, spine problems are very common. Uh, pretty much every clinic, uh, you're gonna see somebody that has you know, something going on with their spine. Um, we'll talk about uh, you know, history and physical exam findings, imaging modalities, and then ultimately you know, what to do with these patients, where to send them for care. So really the objectives today are you know, to understand basic spine pathology. You know, there's terms we all know uh, here you know, spinal stenosis means narrowing around nerves, uh, but it's important to know where that is and if it correlates with the patient's symptoms. Uh, we want to understand a patient's presenting symptoms. Are they just having pain? Are they having numbness, tingling? Are they having weakness? Where is that located? And then we want to understand common treatment options for these patients. So back pain, as I mentioned, uh, extremely common. It's the fifth most common reason for people to seek medical care in an outpatient setting. 84% uh, of adults have had back pain at some point in their lives, and I would venture to say this is probably closer to 100%. 23% uh, of uh, patients have had back pain within the past month. Uh, we know there's several risk factors for back pain, smoking, obesity, sedentary lifestyle, advancing age. We certainly have an advancing uh, you know, 
age population in the United States, so this is going to become even more common. Uh, physically strenuous activities and jobs, sedentary work, so you're sitting a lot, uh, low education, if there's workman's compensation involved, uh, dissatisfaction with your job, or things like anxiety and depression. 85% uh, of back pain is nonspecific, so we're not able to easily say, oh, this is clearly what's causing it. So what do we do to evaluate back pain? Uh, we want to know what factors are associated with the back pain. So this can be what makes it better or what makes it worse. If pain is better when you lay down and worse when you stand up or move, there may be a uh, you know, mechanical component, maybe some spinal instability. Biological pain, such as, such as tumors or other kind of red flag findings, uh, tends to be worse like at night or first thing in the morning and, and better with activity. We want to know where the pain is. Is it you know, center over the spine? Does it locate over you know, the, the back of the hip? Uh, does it radiate down the leg? Uh, is it more of a radiculopathy kind of picture, like a pinched nerve? Uh, is there associated numbness and tingling? Is there associated weakness? Or are there bowel and bladder symptoms? Physical exam is key to evaluation for any spine problem. Uh, we want to look at the back and look at their posture. So this is very easy. You can have patients stand up and see how they stand. Are they stooped forward or do they have a kyphotic posture? Do they have scoliosis where you can see you know, tilting of the shoulders or, or asymmetry in the ribs? Uh, you can palpate or percuss. Is, is there tenderness? Uh, that can be muscular. It can be you know, uh, in, in you know, the setting of trauma. It can be from fractures. Uh, we want to do a thorough neurologic exam, so we want to test major muscle groups. Uh, we want to do a sensory exam. Uh, I think a, a gait exam is one of the, the best exam things I do in clinic. I watch every patient walk. Uh, if they can stand from a seated position and walk without a limp, they can walk on their heels, walk on their toes, then I know that their strength is, is doing pretty well on their legs. And then we can check reflexes. Uh, if they have a compressed nerve, they may be hyporeflexic, so reflexes are diminished. If they have compression of spinal cord or cervical myelopathy, they may be hyperreflexic, so you're getting increased reflexes. We can do a straight leg raise, so uh, basically have the patient lie down, uh, lift their leg up. If they have a, a disc herniation or stenosis, that puts tension across that nerve and, and uh, recreates their, their radiating leg pain. Uh, and then we want to look for non-organic signs. So is there overreaction to exam? Is, does the patient's exam improve when distracted? Is there breakaway weakness? So, um, you know, they're trying to get you to think that there's more stuff going on than, than it's actually going on. And this doesn't have to be, uh, you know, volitional. They don't have to be trying to trick you. Sometimes it's uh, subconscious. Uh, we've all seen these. These are dermatomes. So this is, you know, where the spinal nerve roots uh, run as they exit uh, the neck or the low back. Um, and so this can give us a sense of, you know, if there's numbness in a certain distribution, you know, what nerve roots might be affected. Uh, these are not always the same in everyone. There is overlap, but this kind of gives us a general sense of, you know, what spinal nerve roots, you know, may be, may be involved. Uh, we also talk about myotomes. So uh, you certainly don't need to memorize this, but um, you want to know basic, uh, you know, basic muscle groups. And so, you know, we talk about biceps and wrist extension, you know, that can be like a C6 problem. Uh, are they having, you know, foot drop, you know, is that a L4, or L5 uh, problem? Uh, are they having plantar flexion weakness? So the one way I like to find this is watch the patient walk on their toes. If they can't support their weight on one of their feet, maybe S1's affected. So this can kind of further help us localize, you know, what nerve roots are affected and see if that correlates with imaging. 
I think a very important topic is red flags. So uh, if everyone comes in, they say, my back hurts, you want to find out the ones that, okay, this is, you know, muscle strain, or this is something we can do physical therapy, or, you know, there's some red flags here, we need to get imaging now. Um, big ones are progressive neurological deficits. So if a patient presents with weakness, especially progressive weakness, that's something that, you know, we probably shouldn't delay. We need to get uh, MRI imaging, figure out what's going on, and if this is something that needs to be intervened on sooner rather than later. Another big one is bowel and bladder dysfunction. So we talk about like cauda equina syndrome. So if someone's having urinary incontinence, uh, can't control their bowel or bladder, uh, this a lot of times can mean that it's a, a you know, neurosurgical emergency and those nerves need to be decompressed now. Uh, those are very sensitive nerves. Uh, if you delay too long, the chances of recovery of bowel and bladder function are, are they go down. Um, is the patient having fever? Is there a concern for infection? Uh, infection likes to go to the spine, so osteomyelitis, discitis, we see a lot of it. Um, you know, if patients having fevers along with their back pain, that might be something that needs, you know, more urgent evaluation. Uh, sudden onset of pain or spine tenderness, um, you know, that can be fractures, doesn't always have to be with trauma. So patients can get like osteoporotic compression fractures where they're not doing anything very strenuous, but they have also in the sudden onset of, of pain. Obviously a history of trauma. Uh, if they have a serious underlying condition, so if they have infection other places, did that spread to the spine? You know, if someone has an infected uh, knee or, or hip and then also they're getting back pain, you know, did that in infection spread and now they have osteomyelitis, discitis in their spine. The patient has a history of malignancy and now they're getting back pain, you know, did that metastasize. Um, if patients uh, have diagnosis of osteoporosis or chronic steroid use, that's going to put them at increased risk of, of fractures. So again, like I mentioned, they may not have trauma, they may be doing their normal daily activities. Um, and then also start getting some back pain related to like an osteoporotic compression fracture. So lumbar stenosis, we all hear that term. Uh, what is it? What is it? What does it cause? Uh, so stenosis is narrowing, narrowing around the nerves. Um, if it's narrow around the nerves, nerves can uh, be irritated and cause pain. It can cause radiating leg pain. It can cause numbness. Uh, it can cause weakness if it gets severe enough. And it can cause bowel and bladder incontinence. Um, most of the time, degenerative lumbar stenosis does not get to the point where it causes bowel and bladder incontinence. Uh, the body's pretty good at adapting if this kind of happens slowly over time. The time I worry more about bowel and bladder incontinence is with like an acute change, like an acute disc herniation. The classic finding in lumbar stenosis is neurogenic claudication. So patient walks, they all describe it different. They say legs feel heavy, they feel tired, they feel like they're going to go out from underneath them, they get funny feelings in their legs, they get numbness, tingling. Uh, if they sit down and rest, or if they bend over a shopping cart, or bend over a walker, symptoms tend to improve. Bending forward tends to open up more space around the nerves. So it's really, when I see a patient, I'm concerned about claudication, I say, how far can you walk? And if they say, I can walk you know, three miles, no problem. I'm less concerned about it. If they can say, I can make it from the parking lot in here, and then I gotta sit down. You know, that's someone that I'm worried about. Maybe they're having this neurogenic claudication. So here's an MRI of a patient with lumbar stenosis. So on the left, we see a sagittal T2 MRI. Um, and the main findings are, uh, you look in, the, in the, uh, the central canal. So spinal fluid lights up bright white, and then you can see the gray streaks are the nerves. So the red arrow kind of indicates that's where we have stenosis. That's where we have pinching of those nerves. So you can see above and below, plenty of spinal fluid around the nerves. Uh, 
In the middle view there, we have an axial cross-section. This is a pretty normal level. So you can see plenty of spinal fluid around the nerves. Uh, nerves have plenty of space. And then on the right, the axial uh, is a cross-section where that red arrow is. Now we don't see that spinal fluid. So now it's tighter on those nerves. That's lumbar stenosis. So what are treatment options? Uh, most of the time, this isn't an emergency. We can start with things like physical therapy. You can try steroid injections, see if the patient's doing better. If that stuff's not effective, we have good surgical treatment options. This is typically a laminectomy. So this can be done open. This can be done minimally invasive. Uh, basically, you're removing the, the lamina and making more space for the nerves in the central canal. Uh, most of the time, this can be done outpatient. So a patient can come in, have surgery, go home the same day is a very effective treatment option for, for neurogenic claudication. What about foraminal stenosis? So the foramen are where the nerves exit. So they run in the central canal and at each level they branch off, exit out the foramen and then run down the legs. Um, so foraminal stenosis is narrowing around the neural foramen where the nerve exits. This does not typically cause neurogenic claudication such as central canal stenosis. This tends to be more radicular leg pain, numbness tingling, can be weakness. The foraminal stenosis does not cause bowel and bladder incontinence. So if I see someone with a wide open central canal, uh, just foraminal stenosis, I'm not concerned. I tell them, you're not gonna lose control of your bowel or bladder. Uh, those nerves run in the central canal and exit lower down. So here's an MRI uh, example of foraminal stenosis. So on the left again, there's our uh, midline view, sagittal view. We, do see that there's a fair amount of central canal stenosis uh, at a couple different levels. In the middle, now we're seeing, we still see spinal fluid around the central canal, but where the red arrows are, those are the foramen where the nerves exit. Now we don't see as much space around there. I really like the view on the right when I'm looking for foraminal stenosis. So this is a parasagittal view, so over to the side where we see where that nerve exits. So the nerve is a little gray dot that the arrow is pointing at, and right below that we see that disc bulge into the neural foramen. So that foraminal stenosis can cause radiating leg pain, uh, numbness tingling, weakness if it gets severe enough. Treatment options are different for foraminal stenosis. So just doing a laminectomy, removing the lamina of the central canal, is not going to do much to open up that neural foramen. Sometimes foraminotomies can be an option. Uh, a lot of times in the lumbar spine, I don't think they work uh, as well as, as like a laminectomy for central canal stenosis. You can see on the, on the view on the right, the part of the bone that overlies the foramen is the facet joint. So to really get that neural foramen wide open with surgery, typically we're removing that facet joint. If we remove the facet joint, we cause instability, which a lot of times necessitates a fusion surgery. Fusion surgeries are bigger surgeries, so again, we like to try all the conservative modalities, physical therapy, uh, target injections, and, and save fusion for if that stuff is ineffective. So this is an example in that patient uh, surgery we did for them. So uh, on the right, you can see a little schematic where that nerve is exiting, the part of the bone that overlies that nerve and that neural foramen is the facet joint. So I try to highlight on the image on the left on the x-ray, the post-operative image, uh, that's where we remove that facet joint. And so if you kind of follow forward from that red arrow, you can see a large space now. Uh, that's that unroofed neural foramen. The other thing we try to do is by putting inner body grafts, which are those little spacers between the bones, is to restore disc height. So then if you restore disc height, you can also increase the, the height of the neural foramen and, and make more space for that nerve. What about a lumbar disc herniation? 
So uh, disc herniation can be different from stenosis. Stenosis a lot of times can gradually uh, happen over time. It's from bone spurs, disc bulges, uh, arthropathy in the facet joints. The facets get inflamed and larger. You can get ligamentum hypertrophy. Disc herniation is typically more of a, a sudden onset. So patient may be lifting something, feel a pop, then get radiating leg pain. Symptoms can be similar though. They can get back pain, they can get radiating leg pain, they can get numbness, tingling, they can get weakness. Severe disc herniations with compression of the cauda equina, so in the central canal, uh, those are patients that can get you know, bowel and bladder dysfunction. So if someone comes in and says, yeah, I picked up a heavy box, now my leg is killing me and, and I'm not able to control my bladder. That's one of those red flag findings that you know, this is something that needs to be decompressed you know, immediately, emergently. So here's an example of a patient with a disc herniation. So on the left, again, our parasagittal view. Uh, so the top arrow, you can see that disc herniating out. And actually the bottom arrow, if you look closely, there's a large fragment of disc uh, in that, in that uh, central canal. Uh, in the middle view there, now we're really not seeing any spinal fluid around the nerves. That is actually a large fragment of disc that's right in the spinal canal. So this is someone I'm worried about. Hey, they're getting compression of all those nerve roots running. Uh, they can have a cauda equina type picture. This is someone that needs, you know, emergent surgery. Uh, on the right there, you can see our post-operative view. So now you can see what things look like after we went in, resected that disc herniation. So now we see, you know, restored that spinal canal, and now we can see space around those nerves. What about the neck? So uh, we can get very similar things to the low back and the neck. So cervical stenosis would be narrowing in the cervical spine. Uh, where the narrowing can cause different issues. So again, if it's narrowing around the foramen where the nerves exit, typically a patient will present with radiculopathy. So they'll get radiating arm pain, numbness tingling, they may get weakness in their upper extremities. If it's in the central canal, in the neck, that's where the spinal cord lives. So then we talk about myelopathy. So myelopathy is uh, from compression of the spinal cord. That tends to be more balance problems, coordination problems. So a patient says, you know, I just feel off balance when I'm walking, I'm dropping things with my hands, I'm fumbling with buttons, my handwriting isn't very good. Those are all concerning signs for myelopathy. Um, if a patient has compression of their exiting nerve roots, they might get loss of reflexes or hyporeflexia. If the patient has compression of their spinal cord, they may be hyperreflexic. So you're really seeing those reflexes jump and one reflex I like is the Hoffman sign. Basically, you're flicking the distal joint of the middle finger and you're looking for the other digits, thumb and other, you know, forefinger to, you know, jump when you're flicking that. That can be a sign that there's compression of the spinal cord. So here's an example of a patient, uh, again, parasagittal MRI of the cervical spine. So on the left, uh, we see, you know, there's a disc protrusion that's going out abutting the spinal cord. Uh, on the top view on the right, we see there's a lot of central canal stenosis. So this is where the spinal cord is being compressed. So I'd be worried about myelopathy. I'd be worried about balance problems, coordination problems. On the one on the bottom, uh, now we're looking at more foraminal stenosis. So at this level, I wouldn't be as concerned for the spinal cord. It is getting a little narrow, but now we're seeing that foraminal stenosis where that nerve is trying to exit on the side. So this would be someone that would be getting more radicular arm symptoms, pain, numbness, tingling, weakness in the upper extremity. So what treatment options do we have for cervical stenosis? Well, I think 
you know, there's, there's several good uh, options. Uh, again, if we can avoid surgery, that's always best. Uh, if we get to the point where, you know, if the patient has progressive myelopathy or conservative modalities are, are ineffective, uh, then we talk about surgery. So surgery can be coming from the front, uh, typically something like an anterior cervical discectomy infusion where we make an incision in the front, remove that disc, put a spacer in there with little plate and screws that stabilizes everything, or it can be coming from the back, uh, like a posterior cervical laminectomy infusion. Uh, laminoplasty can be an option. So instead of fusing the patient's spine, we basically make a hinge and open up uh, some more space uh, with the lamina. I'll show some examples of that here in a minute. Uh, artificial discs are an option. They do exist for the, the low back as well. Um, they're newer for the low back and haven't been around this long. Uh, but artificial discs for the neck, I think, can be a good treatment option in select patients. So typically these are younger patients. They want to maintain more normal range of motion. They're not having a lot of neck pain. It's more for radicular symptoms. They may be a candidate for a cervical artificial disc or arthroplasty. So here's some pictures, some examples. So uh, the two pictures on the left, uh, this is someone that underwent a cervical laminoplasty. So they were having myelopathy symptoms, so spinal cord compression. Um, these aren't very good for foraminal stenosis, but basically we hinge open uh, the uh, lamina to make more space around the spinal cord. So you can see the little brackets there, view from the front, view from the side. They're basically connecting uh, that lamina when we hinge it open. On the right, this is a patient that underwent a uh, cervical arthroplasty or an artificial disc. So the metal in there that you see is a, is a disc that's actually designed to move. So you can see when they're bending backwards, when they're bending forwards, they're maintaining range of motion at that level. Uh, so in younger patients that don't have a lot of arthritis, their facet joints are good. Um, these can be good options to kind of maintain more normal range of motion in their neck. What about fusion? So uh, fusion is certainly an option as well. Uh, this will depend on where the stenosis is, how many levels, you know, if it's all the levels in the neck, um, we're kind of limited by how much we can do from the front. Um, so sometimes those patients are gonna require a laminectomy infusion. So the two images on the left are someone that underwent, you know, multi-level laminectomy, basically all the levels in the neck and then an instrumentation infusion to stabilize things. We found in the past, if we do just a laminectomy in the neck, uh, patients next want to tip four, they want to kyphose. So the instrumentation is to maintain their, you know, more normal alignment. On the right, uh, two pictures are a patient that under, underwent an ACDF, or an anterior cervical discectomy infusion. So ACDFs are, are one of the mainstays of, of, you know, cervical spine surgery. It's effective at central canal decompression, it's also effective at uh, neuroforaminal decompression. So uh, you can remove bone spurs and osteophytes from the front. You can put you know, spacers in to restore disc height, and that opens up more space around the neural foramen. And then I typically use a, a plate and screw construct to kind of stabilize that to, to allow those uh, bones to heal and fuse together. What about spinal deformity? So uh, I included this topic because uh, these are patients that maybe, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, uh, spine surgeons may have told them, we don't have a good surgical option. Your spine's too bad, surgery's not gonna help. Um, but spinal alignment problems can cause a lot of, a lot of difficulty for the patient. Um, it's easy to stand upright. If you're standing straight upright, you can typically stand for a long period of time. 
if you have a spinal deformity where you're kyphotic or tip forward or you have scoliosis and you're off to the side, your body needs to exert a lot more energy and a lot more effort to maintain a standing posture. So a lot of times these patients are only able to stand, you know, 30 seconds, a minute, and then they start getting severe pain. They have to sit down. Um, a lot of times spinal deformity is combined with stenosis, foraminal stenosis, disc herniations. A lot of adults, they get spinal deformity, they get scoliosis from their degenerative changes. So discs wear out, the bones settle on each other. If they settle more on one side than the other, they can start to get some, some curve in their spine. So I'll go through some cases here. Um, so first case is a 52-year-old female. Uh, she presents with several years of, of axial low back pain, so pain in her back and difficulty standing upright. Uh, she's tried all the conservative modalities, physical therapy. She's tried epidural steroid injections. She's tried radiofrequency ablations, where basically they're targeting the pain nerves around the facet joints. Uh, radiofrequency ablations, I think, are a great treatment option for a lot of patients with axial back pain. Uh, they consist of two parts. Basically, you go in and numb the medial branches, which are branches of nerves that sense pain around the facet joint. I tell my patients it's like numbing a toothache. lasts the rest of the day. But if they feel a lot better for the rest of the day, then you can do the second part, which is a radiofrequency ablation, where basically it's a minimally invasive procedure. They go home the same day. Uh, they put a little probe down. It heats up and ablates or burdens the nerve endings. That can give you that same pain relief for months up to a few years sometimes. Uh, so they can be good options in patients who are you know, trying to avoid a large surgery, get their pain doing better. Unfortunately for her, uh, these modalities uh, didn't offer enough pain relief. On exam, she's alert and oriented, cranial nerves are intact. She has good strength in her upper and lower extremities, good sensation, but she does stand leaning off to the left. And here's what her x-rays look like. Um, so looking at her from the side, so these are scoliosis x-rays. So I get these x-rays, I wanna look at overall alignment. She's not terrible looking at her from the side. She's, for the most part, standing upright. She's a little kyphotic across her thoracolumbar junction. Looking at her from the front though, she does have significant scoliosis in the thoracic and lumbar spine. And she is leaning off to the left. So this is the part where she's having to fight to, to kind of stay centered and not, not tip over. On the right, we see an MRI, and so this is that parasagittal view MRI. So her central canal is pretty open. Uh, but when you get scoliosis, typically on the concavity of the curve, so the inner part of the curve, you tend to get narrowing around the foramen. Uh, you can imagine as the bones tip over that way, it starts to get narrow and close in on those nerves. So a lot of times these patients present with radiculopathy uh, from the, the foraminal stenosis, from the concavity of their curve. We also look at between L4 and S1, when the spine first starts to take off, we call that the fractional curve. Um, so a lot of times on the concavity of the fractional curve, in her case on the left, uh, she's gonna get you know, foraminal narrowing and, and lumbar radiculopathy from that, from that fractional curve. So what treatment options do we have for her? So this is some surgical planning software that I've been using for the past couple of years. So uh, we know we wanna get this patient, you know, more balanced, upright, we want to decompress her spinal nerves, uh, correct her fractional curve, correct her thoracolumbar curve, uh, keep her in an upright posture. So this surgical planning software helps us simulate a surgery, uh, and we simulate what we call osteotomies. So osteotomies are cuts in the bone that loosen up the spine to allow us to get the spine back in better alignment. We can also simulate inner bodies. So if you look at the third picture uh, uh, from the left, 
we have little blue squares in there. So those are simulating inner bodies um, and how much correction we're going to get from, from placing inner bodies between the bones. And then the picture all the way to the right, that gives us an overview of what her spinal alignment looked like before the red line, what her goal is, the white line, and then the blue is our patient-specific implant, our rod. So we uh, actually get a rod that's manufactured specifically for this patient. Um, and then when we do our surgery, that does two things. One is it helps us get that alignment exactly where we want it to be. And it also tells us, you know, uh, did we do enough? Did we do enough correction? If we make our osteotomy cuts and the rod doesn't look like it's gonna, gonna fit in, maybe we need to do a little bit more, get that spine closer uh, before getting things locked in place with that rod. And this is what she looks like after surgery. So again, preoperatively, our plan, and then what we got with our, you know, with our rod. So you can see pretty close to, to what we predicted. Uh, and then the views on the right are scoliosis before and what we're able to achieve as far as her alignment after. These obviously are very large surgeries. Um, I tell people this surgery is, you know, it's an eight hour surgery, usually in the hospital for about a week. So these are very important to optimize the patient uh, beforehand, uh, try all the conservative modalities before jumping into surgery. Uh, if you can avoid surgeries like this, that's always best. These are really reserved for patients that don't get better with physical therapy, that don't get better with injections. They're miserable. They can't do the things that they need to be doing to, to live. Go through another case here. Um, so this is a 62-year-old patient of mine. Uh, again, presents with progressive back pain, radiating leg pain. She's getting numbness, tingling, weakness in her legs. Uh, she's had several falls. Uh, she does use a wheelchair. She came to clinic in a wheelchair. She is able to walk short distances, but, but not very well. Uh, she also has done physical therapy. Uh, and she has a history of a, a spinal fusion in 2012. Um, she's having some spasticity, so they've also placed a backlifting pump. On exam, she's alert and oriented. Her cranial nerves are intact. Uh, she has good strength in her upper extremities. Uh, she's diffusely four out of five in her lower extremities, so she does have some weakness, and three out of five in her right dorsiflexion and, and EHL. So she is getting some foot drop on the right side. Uh, and she has diminished sensation in her bilateral legs pretty diffusely. I think this is an interesting uh, slide. So uh, this is over the time course of about two to three years. So on the left, you can see she's had a fusion before. Her spine looks pretty well aligned. You can start to see in the next one over to the right, starting to get a little discite loss. So uh, at, at uh, L3, 4, disc is starting to wear out, starting to get a little bit of bone spurs. The next one to the right, now she's starting to get a little bit of scoliosis. It's not terrible yet, but it's starting to go. And then by the time she saw me, the one all the way to the right, now you can see things are really collapsed down, really starting to get that scoliosis curve. So this is what her CT and MRI look like. So on the left, uh, we have a CT uh, of her low back. So you can see those discs are really eaten away. It's sitting, you know, pretty much bone on bone at L4-5. There's a lot of retrolisthesis, so L4 is really slipping back on L5. Even the levels above those discs are looking pretty unhealthy. You're starting to see those end plate changes and stuff like that. On the MRI scan, we see that she's getting a fair amount of stenosis. So uh, with that retrolisthesis, with the bone spurs, uh, she's getting narrowing around those nerves. And then the image on the right, I'm trying to show you what used to be a neural foramen. So uh, because that disc is so collapsed and those bones are set all on each other, there's essentially 
no neural foramen there anymore. So there's a nerve trying to exit where that red arrow is pointing. Uh, it's really getting smashed. Uh, so, you know, that's why she's getting that, that foot drop on that right side. So what options do we have for her? So again, uh, we like to start with the conservative modalities, physical therapy. She's not responding. Uh, we talk about, you know, surgery, surgery to correct this. So again, using our planning software, we plan our osteotomies, we plan our inner bodies, and we say, you know, how are we going to get this patient's spine in better alignment? I think one interesting thing that this uh, planning software allows us to do is if you look at the center image, so she's really lost that lumbar lordosis, so the curve to, to stand upright. And so she needs to compensate for that. So if you look at her thoracic spine, she's really flattening it out because she's trying to stand upright. She doesn't want to be standing tip forward. So what the planning software allows us to do is, is uh, estimate what's going to happen with reciprocal changes. So when we add that lordosis back in her lumbar spine, what's going to happen to the thoracic spine. Hopefully she's not going to have to extend that thoracic spine. She's going to get a little more natural kyphosis in her thoracic spine. So this planning software really kind of helps us, you know, determine what are we going to do to correct and then what's going to happen reciprocally in the rest of the spine. So here's her surgery. So on the left, we can see the scoliosis before and after, uh, standing much more upright now. Uh, the center image, uh, what she looked like, uh, sagittal alignment looking at her from the side and then what we plan to do with surgery and then uh, the surgery we perform for her. So you can see that what we were talking about where she's flattening her thoracic spine she's going to get the reciprocal kyphosis after surgery did happen so now she has a more normal curve uh, in, her, in her thoracic spine. One thing that's extremely important for these patients uh, especially undergoing large surgeries is that we, you know, monitor them closely, not only before surgery, but after surgery to see, did we get the correction we need? Uh, are they maintaining that? Are they developing adjacent level problems? So here's an example of some of the measurements that we do. And the surgical planning software makes it nice because uh, it automates these, these measurements. So I don't have to sit in clinic and do, draw all the angles on, on x-rays. This automates the process for us. So, in her preoperative visit, uh, we see things like pelvic tilt, how much they're tilting their hips back to try and stand upright, lumbar lordosis, how much curve they have in their low back. She had about four degrees uh, before surgery. Um, and we know that um, there's a, a measurement called pelvic incidence, which kind of gives us a guideline of how much lordosis someone should have. And we knew that she's about, you know, about 40 degrees off. So she needs about 40 degrees more lordosis. So we plan to get her to about 40 degrees. Uh, the yellow arrow is what our plan was for the case. And then the blue arrow and the purple arrow are follow-up visits. So, um, you know, she's about four months after surgery on the, on the first follow-up visit and about uh, uh, eight months after surgery on the second follow-up visit. So we can see, did we achieve the correction we wanted? Is it staying? Uh, if it's not, if they're starting to tip back forward, are they having a problem? Are they getting kyphosis above their surgery? Is the, you know, do we get a rod fracture and things are starting to tip back forward, things like that. So it's extremely important to, to uh, keep close tabs on these patients. I'll, I'll see these patients uh, to at least two years and then usually yearly indefinitely after that. Last case here, uh, so this is a 54-year-old gentleman uh, presented in my clinic with, uh, again, progressive back pain, difficulty standing upright. He does have a history of MS. 
so we know if someone has a, a neurologic condition that can affect posture control, can affect muscles, um, and that can lead to, to spinal deformity problems. He also has a back of pump placed for, for his MS and spasticity. Uh, his exam, he's alert and oriented. His cranial nerves are intact. He does have some baseline four, to five, four plus out of five right upper and lower extremity related to his MS. Um, he has diminished sensation on the right side as well. It's not myelopathic. He doesn't have a Hoffman sign. Uh, he's a little hyporeflexic in his lower extremities. Uh, his gait is very slow and intelligent. Uh, and he does have a very kyphotic posture. He's leaning to the right. So this is what he looks like in clinic. So you can see this is not just a, a thoracolumbar problem. This is a cervical problem too. A big problem for these patients is horizontal gaze. It's very difficult to do things, live life, go to the store, go grocery shopping, if you can't look forward. Um, so this is a very debilitating condition. This is someone that, you know, 20 years ago probably wouldn't have a great option for him. Here's his measurements. So we do all the preoperative measurements, figure out, you know, what, what his alignment should be, where he's at now. Uh, and then we do our surgical planning. Um, so you can see this is a, a very large surgery. Um, you know, obviously you need to come to these patients on, on recovery after. Um, we do our, our planning, what osteotomy cuts we're gonna need, what inner bodies we're gonna need to get this patient, you know, uh, back upright. So on the left, you can see he's very far leaning off to the right. And looking at him from the side, he's very tip forward. So he's got a flat low back. Also his cervical spine is very kyphotic. He can't maintain that uh, horizontal gaze. So this is what we did for th this patient. This is obviously an, an extreme example of, of surgery, but I just wanted to kind of highlight the things that we're able to do now. Uh, you know, safely that, that probably wasn't an option in years past. Uh, so now you can see he's upright, uh, he's looking forward, and what he looks like from the side. So this is a life-changing surgery. This is someone that, that is struggling to stand, struggling to walk, uh, go to the store. Uh, now they're upright. Um, and, and able to do those uh, activities daily, daily living, you know, much easier, much more comfortably. So thank you. Thank you again for having me. I hope you, you got something out of this. And uh, yeah, um, I'm always available. You can email me with any questions or anything. Well, thanks, Andy. I think when many people think about spine surgery, they think about surgical incisions whose length is measured in feet rather than inches. How are you incorporating minimally invasive techniques into spine surgery? Absolutely. So uh, minimally invasive spine surgery is one of those areas that's seen a rapid, uh, rapid you know, evolution over the past several years. Obviously, some of those surgeries I showed are extreme examples of patients that, you know, they, they need a large open surgery. Those are, those are big surgeries. Most patients that need spine surgery, that's not what they're getting. Um, so with minimally invasive techniques, we're really able to target, you know, exactly where we need to go and, you know, through a one or two centimeter incision. A lot of times these are outpatient procedures. You go home the same day. Uh, really reduces blood loss, need for post-operative pain medications, um, and really speeds recovery. And so if we can target, you know, a specific nerve that's getting impinged on and, and really target that with a minimally invasive procedure, uh, that's, that's a great option for patients. What about robotics and spine surgery? Robotics is another area that's made some rapid uh, evolution over the past several years. And so uh, in spine surgery, um, we were a little behind some of the general surgeons as far as some robotic techniques, but now there's numerous platforms out there that, that uh, help us. We use them as a tool during surgery. So the robots don't do the surgery, 
but really the goal is to increase precision and accuracy with implants that we're, we're, we're placing. So right now, uh, if I need to put um, screws in to stabilize the spine and unstable spine, the robotic platform helps me more accurately place those, uh, making it safer for the patient. I think it's going to be an exciting next five or ten years in robotic spine surgery as, as the robots evolve and are able to do more things like decompressions and stuff like that. So it's a very exciting time. From a structural and functional standpoint, the spine is incredibly complex. Are, are you incorporating artificial intelligence into the planning for spine surgeries? We are, and so that, that uh, surgery planning software that I showed some examples of uh, actually does incorporate artificial intelligence. And so, um, and the part that's important is the post-operative images, the post-operative outcomes, and so we can learn, and the machine learning can learn, you know, if we didn't get our alignment goals just right, you know, what went wrong, and what can we modify for the next time we plan to make sure we're more accurately getting that patient's spinal alignment exactly where it needs to be. For the primary care provider who's evaluating a patient with back pain, what initial imaging tests should we be ordering? So I think it's, it's a combination of imaging as well as a thorough history and physical because uh, those really go together. Um, so I always get uh, a, a good history, you know, things like what makes the pain better or worse, you know, is it more of a mechanical kind of thing, is it more muscular pain, uh, is it radiating pain, where is it radiating? Um, and then pairing that with a thorough physical exam. So uh, are they getting weakness? Can we say this is a certain myotome? This is you know L4 or is this S1? Um, and then I pair that with my imaging modalities. I think you can get a lot out of just standard routine x-rays. Um, I like x-rays because patients are upright, they're standing, and so we can see if there's instability that we might not see if the patient's laying down for an MRI or a CT scan. Um, if a disc is wearing out, you might not see the disc, you don't see the nerves on the x-rays, but you get a sense of you're getting disc height loss, you're getting osteophytes or bone spurs. Um, you can get all those things from x-rays. So I get a very good idea, not everything, from just a standard set of x-rays. Um, I usually incorporate flexion extension x-rays into uh, cervical as well as lumbar spine because then I'm looking for instability. Are things moving? Are they translating abnormally? Um, that may correlate with symptoms that we might not see on an MRI scan because the MRI you're laying in static. Um, the next uh, imaging modality after x-rays is, is, is MRI. MRI is really the mainstay of spine imaging. Um, MRI shows us nerves, it shows us the foramen, it shows us the central canal, it shows us the discs, all the soft tissue things that we're looking for. And then I'm really trying to correlate those MRI findings with um, what I'm finding based on the patient's history and based on that physical exam. Well, you discussed how spinal stenosis and foraminal stenosis differ in their clinical presentations. When I've ordered spine MRIs in the past on older patients, it's really common to see some degree of stenosis on the radiologist report. How do you decide whether foraminal or spinal stenosis warrants surgery? Yep. Pretty much every MRI scan is going to say, some sort of stenosis, especially in older, older patients. It's normal to have wear and tear. It's normal to get some degenerative disc disease. So a lot of times you're looking at a report that says, you know, L1-2, there's stenosis. L2-3, there's moderate stenosis. L3-4, there's severe stenosis. Mild, moderate, severe. Um, there's no great uniform classification for what's mild, what's moderate, what's severe. So I, that's where correlating it with the patient's symptoms is very important. If it says, there's severe stenosis at all three, four, but they don't have any symptoms there, then I don't worry about it. Um, I'm really looking for that correlation with, 
you know, if there's stenosis around the L4 nerve root and they have numbness along L4 and they have weakness in dorsiflexion, you know, those are things that correlate with that imaging finding and that's going to lead me to say, all right, there's something that potentially needs, needs treatment. Does the presence of osteoporosis affect your decision on whether or not to operate on the spine? Absolutely. Um, and it depends on what exactly we're planning to do. And so osteoporosis, um, I think it's important in general for screening patients at risk uh, to make sure that they don't run into problems like compression fractures and stuff. If I'm planning a laminectomy or a discectomy, a decompression, I worry less about osteoporosis. If I'm planning an instrumented fusion where I'm putting screws and rods in, uh, I tell my patients, if those screws and rods get loose, things come apart, we can be in a worse place than before we started. So I screen all my patients that are getting, you know, especially multi-level fusions uh, for osteoporosis. If they have osteoporosis, I'm relying on my bone endocrinology colleagues to evaluate that patient, get them on a bone anabolic agent, uh, usually for several months before deciding to go to surgery to, to optimize that bone health and help them heal from surgery. What about BMI? Does the patient's weight affect the surgical decision-making or in the outcomes of spine surgery? We know that BMI does affect outcomes. Um, so as BMI goes up, uh, patients can be at increased risk for medical complications uh, and surgical complications. And so uh, we're currently writing up our, our series on patients that undergo long segment deformity surgeries looking at patients with normal BMI versus a, a high BMI, we found that um, all the patients get better to about the same degree. So when they fill out their uh, patient reported outcomes, they all get better. Our obese patients, however, did have higher rates of, of kidney problems after surgery, uh, heart problems after surgery, as well as instrumentation failure, like screws getting loose or rods fracturing. So I think it's important to counsel those patients that you, know, you, you may be a candidate for surgery, but you're gonna have a uh, you know, higher risk of those complications. For our patients who are considering future surgery for spine disorders, what can the primary care provider do to optimize them for surgery and hopefully reduce their chances of complications? Yeah, I think uh, a few things. So I tell people things that are good for your spine are good for you in general. So optimizing blood glucose, optimizing you know hypertension. Um, and then the other thing is uh, physical therapy. So a lot of times physical therapy can help us avoid surgery, you know, and if they're not having those red flag symptoms. And then two, I tell people, even if we get to the point of, of, you know, proceeding with surgery, doing physical therapy before can help with recovery after. So you get the muscles tuned up, get the patients mobilized, used to, to, you know, exercising, and that can help with recovery after surgery. So I think, um, I would say optimize, you know, patient medically, um, and then have the patient do some physical, physical therapy. Well, after spine surgery, what should the primary care provider tell patients about activity and exercise? So I always tell all my patients, uh, in the first six weeks after surgery, pretty much regardless of what you had done, um, walking is the best thing for you. Lots of walking. You're going to get tired. You're going to get sore quicker than normal. You just had surgery. So I tell people, short trips, sit down, rest. Uh, as you get further out from surgery, gradually increase the distance and the, and the frequency you're walking. After that time, that's when we start to gradually increase activity. Um, before that, lifting restrictions, usually around 10 or 15 pounds. I tell people not doing a lot of twisting and bending, try to keep a neutral posture. After that, we'll start increasing activity, easing those lifting restrictions.
We started off today's webcast talking about football injuries and two famous Americans, John F. Kennedy and Peyton Manning. And you serve as one of the team physicians for the High State University football team. For our viewers who are also team physicians for high school or college sports, what recommendations do you have for the initial assessment of athletes with back injuries on the field? So I think it's it's twofold. Uh, the first and foremost thing is to ensure that uh, you know players that are injured on the field uh, don't become further injured. So it's spinal precautions. So it's uh, you know not mobilizing the, the player. Um, it's maintaining spinal precautions. If they have a helmet in place and you're worried about a neck injury, it's not you know cranking on the helmet to take it off. It's really maintaining those spinal precautions help prevent secondary injury. And I think the other critical thing is is a thorough neurologic exam. Is this you know just pain, or are they having neurologic symptoms? If they're having weakness, if they're you know not able to move, um, if they're having numbness, tingling, those are things that require you know urgent evaluation and urgent MRI scans to figure out where the neural compromise is and what we need to do about it. Well, one last question: A lot of the uh, surgeries that you showed us images of had a lot of metal hardware in, in the backs. What do you tell patients who are planning on traveling as far as going through TSA metal detectors? It's a very common question. So uh, most of the metal is, is titanium. Um, so a lot of times it doesn't set off metal detectors. So I tell them there's no special card you need to carry. Um, you can go through metal detectors just fine. You can get MRI scans is another common question. If I have you know metal screws and rods in my back, can I not get MRIs anymore? You can get MRIs. Um, so nothing special you need to do for travel. Well, thanks, Andy. We're going to finish up with a final key point about common spine disorders. Andy? So final point is, you know, spinal disorders are very common. Everyone who treats patients is going to see someone with a spinal uh, problem. Uh, figuring out, you know, you know, where that problem is, uh, doing a thorough history and physical, and seeing if that correlates with imaging is really going to help you to find where that patient needs to go for treatment, what the next treatment steps are. Well, Andy, thanks again for joining us today. And for all of you viewing, don't forget that you can get American Board of Internal Medicine Maintenance of Certification points for viewing MedNet and then answering the post-test questions following the webcast. And join us next week when infectious disease specialist Dr. Sidney Agnello and infectious disease PharmD Erica Reed will be here to update us on antimicrobial resistance and antibiotic stewardship. We'll see you then.